Hi, and welcome to Skip Intro, the new podcast from Binge, all about the world's best television. Each week, we're here to discuss the biggest new shows on Binge, along with a few of our own recommendations. My name is John Bowen, here with Ali Herbert Burns, and together we look after all the great TV and movies that you see on Binge. That's everything from buying them, to scheduling them, to how you see them presented to you on the app when you turn it on in the evening. Ali, does that cover most of it? I think that sounds mighty grand enough, John. Hey, and there's a great team in Sydney that that help us bring Binge to life. Awesome. So a lot to get through today. What are we discussing? We are, first up, we're talking about Hotel Portofino, a new um, drama that comes to us from England. And also because the last episode of season one, will it be the first and only season or will there be more to come? Who knows? But the last episode of And Just Like That has just dropped on Binge along with a behind the scenes documentary. So we've got that to go through. Um, And then our dinner party recommendations, the hidden gems or the things on Binge we love that we think deserve a shout. Awesome. Well, let's head to the Italian Riviera with Hotel Portofino. Welcome to the Hotel Portofino. A very English hotel on the Italian Riviera. How utterly charming. What's that dreadful racket? I believe some guests are arriving. Oh, I knew we should have rented a villa. How does an English family come to be here in the first place? A fresh start. After the war chance to put all your troubles behind you. An English-run hotel on the Italian Riviera in the 1920s is the setting for the latest lavish UK period drama. The series opens a few weeks into the operation of Hotel Portofino as it welcomes its first visitors, a who's who of British high society. But behind the glamorous location, of course, lies a few secrets, lies and intrigue. Ali, without just straight out calling this Downton Abbey the hotel, uh, <laughs> how would you pitch this show? How would I pitch this show? The English show Doc Martin, where there's a whole village involved in relationships and things, but it's set in a hotel, not a doctor's surgery. There's some crime, not clear yet of a murder, so there's like a Miss Marple kind of slow solve into the mystery. And then it's set in Italy, so it's really nice but it's very British in its approach. Yeah. How'd I go? What do you reckon? (laughs) Good, good. I can already hear my mom texting me to ask when it starts. Yeah, I think you've hit on a few good things. Downton Abbey vibes, definitely, like even from the music and from the lavish location, although obviously very different location to Downton Abbey, arguably maybe a nicer scenery in Hotel Portofino than Downton Abbey. But then I think the Miss Marple thing, even though there hasn't been a murder yet, I'm kind of still waiting for a murder to make it clear I haven't seen the whole first season about half of it but what I think is really interesting and is sort of Marple-esque is that because it's a hotel it is this sort of diverse group of characters not overly diverse but sort of diverse British high society have all sort of you know obviously come together into this sort of intimate hotel where they share meals and there's sort of intrigue about who's who and you do kind of keep expecting them to wake up to a, a murder at some point but yeah Downton Abbey, Miss Marple and then Agatha Christie. <laughs> yeah. And then I guess there's in the same way Downton Abbey dealt with, you know, the Titanic and war and things like that. There is this backdrop of Mussolini's Italy sort of slowly seeping into this. It's this like little enclave of England in Italy. You know, 99% of people at the hotel, the guests and the staff are all English and they all, you know, travel all the way from England to go hang out with other English people. But they are surrounded yeah. by this, you know, 
beautiful Italian village and, you know, politically what's happening in the world is sort of starts to seep into the hotel through, you know, the suppliers and the the townspeople that come and want to have an event. And Yeah, well, there's a bit of mafia. There's a bit of clipping the ticket to get anything, you know, your deliveries don't get, come to the hotel unless you pay somebody. Then there's this, yeah, fascism and there's even a little bit of... Um, forbidden love both between the upstairs downstairs Bridgerton style dynamics of who's worthy for you to fall in love with or your marriage matches made but also what at the time would have been illegal sexual dalliances with um with a homosexual character as well so there's lots of kind of we're not saying it's sleepy um but for what what's going on in this hotel there's packing quite a punch and lots of lovely looking people yeah, they set up tons of storylines. So I'm not sure how they're going to resolve them all. I'm sure the plan is for this to be certainly more, more than one season. But yeah, even in the first few episodes, as as we've mentioned, they cover a lot of ground. And as you mentioned, there's lots of very beautiful people in very beautiful, what appear to be like woolen swimsuits. But I guess that was the, the style at the time. Um, just Can we just talk about that for a minute? The, the, the swimsuits? Or the... No, just the outfits. Like they're having... They're having dinner. It's hot. You're in Italy. And like, it's summertime and they were, and I know it was the time, but these people are like dressed in like three piece suits and yes, they might be linen, but so many scenes. I'm just like, seriously, how can you go for a picnic on the beach or like enjoy the scenery with this many clothes on? Like I just, just like, think about how we holiday now. And the other thing about this that I was like, this is not my type of holiday. Whilst the hotel was beautiful and the location, it's literally on this gorgeous cliff overlooking the ocean in Portofino, but you have to have dinner every night with the same people. It's kind of like being stuck on a cruise ship. I was like, and you have to get dressed up for the dinner and people are in like black tie and obviously it's fancy and that was the times. But I was like, if you're an introvert or you want to just go on holiday and like hide in a room and get, you know, takeaway, this is not my modern day version of a holiday aside from the beautiful location. No, it does in a way remind me of the White Lotus, just obviously because of the hotel setting, but how vastly different the, the, the sort of two experiences are. It's, it's, I guess it's like the White Lotus with a lot more manners and pretending to be nice to each other as opposed to White Lotus where they're sort of outwardly mean to each other. The backdrop is sort of stunning and the show doesn't go a few minutes without showing you a beautiful vista of, of where it's filmed and where it's set. That's also just a draw card for the show. Um, a couple of the cast that will be familiar to people. Uh, Natasha McAlone is sort of the lead and she runs the hotel. People will know her from like Californication and The Truman Show. She's also in the mm -hmm. upcoming Halo series. She's sort of, like, kind of matriarch's the right word, but she kind of, she runs the whole place and she's always solving the problems. Um, but there's also clearly a bit of past there about how she got the hotel and how it's being run and things like that. And another character that um, I immediately noticed was Adam James, who binge viewers will recognize from both Vigil and I May Destroy You. But there's actors from Downton Abbey, there's actors from Agatha Christie series. And a young Australian actress, Claude Scott Mitchell, who plays one of the kind of lead younger characters who's been kind of set up for romance. She's yeah, Australian. Some people might know her from The Dry. So if you're looking for a little break from isolation or from just Australia in general, uh, Hotel Portofino's doors open uh, this week on Binge and the entire first season, which is uh, six one-hour episodes, are streaming now. We must do our best to make it all seem worth your while. Jack says we shouldn't settle for a penny less than 100,000. Vincenzo Danioni at your service. He's a fascist, Cecil. You would be wise to tolerate him. Who is the subversive in our midst? In this sleepy little town of all places. 
What exactly is it that you want? What we all want, Senor Ainsworth. The Sex and the City reboot, and just like that, has not only broken records on binge, it's also been one of the most discussed and dissected shows of the summer. To round out season one, we've just released, and just like that, the documentary, which takes a behind the scenes look at the series. Action. What? What? Oh, action. action. Wow. Oh. Tomorrow we have the very first scenes in the show. Roll it! Even 23 years in, I'm excited, terrified and excited. It's unbelievable. It's a big deal. I know, I'm panicked, I'm panicked. Ali, I really, really, really enjoyed this documentary. I thought it was fascinating. And it was kind of like a nice tonal cleanser to finish the series, I thought. Did you find yourself watching this and going, I wish they'd release this earlier? So many things that people have been talking about for the last 10 weeks were almost answered or addressed by watching this, did you find? Yeah, it was int- it obviously, you know, I think you're meant to watch it after the show, but it was nice to see all the little like nods that they'd thought about or the like arguments that they'd had in deciding one thing or the other. Totally. Like Uber fans will just spin out on the the amount of focus that's on the fashion, the wardrobe behind the scenes, the fittings. There's a very strong SJP vibe in it. And you see and hear more of her thoughts on the show and planning and then you have in any interviews and stuff so far. So I like geeked out on all of that and up behind and then they show you how all that ends up in a quick flash to where it is in the scene and what goes into it. So I felt like it went really true to its fashion roots. Um, and I also really liked seeing the volume of people that were on the set and how, what went in, like you had executive producers and behind the scenes and gaffers and they talk about, Hey, this has been my job. And I've, I worked on the show. I've been working on Sex and City for 25 years. So you certainly got the connection to the passion and the people that were involved in the original show, which I think is a really was beneficial to me because you were like, okay, there's a lot of consistency. Yeah, even one of the the show, like the documentary sort of broken up into little chapters. And one of the chapters I think is called Institutional Knowledge. And it's a reference to like everyone involved in the show basically came back for the reboot. And they talked about how- Well, oh, except my, like, you Miranda. Know, I mean, what's her name? Well, Samantha. Samantha. Well, lots of people, <laughs> lots of the crew came back. They talked about how, you know, their first gig was the pilot in 1990, whatever. And, you know, 23 years later, they're still lighting Sex in the City, like, and they did all the movies. And like, it speaks to obviously the love for the series, but also that it probably quite a nice work environment that people want to keep coming back to these things. This is such a tangent, but a few years ago um, when the Oprah show was finishing, they did like a behind the scenes doco and they equally talked to, you know, the producers and the costume designers and everything. And they'd all been there. I think Oprah ran for 25 years and like everyone they spoke to had been there like over 15 or 20 years because they just loved it so much. So I think it like it does say something about a workplace and a show or an environment that people want to keep coming back to it. Sounds like home and away and neighbours, you know, people have been on it for forever, haven't they? And I will say this isn't like your standard behind the scenes thing. It's not like it's not sit down interviews. It's very much fly on the wall. It, It is directed by this sort of French director who you do hear, he's like, you hear him ask little questions here and there and it really feels like he's just hanging out with them. But yeah, it's much more of a, like an observational documentary than a sort of, you know, DVD extra sort of thing. I agree with that. But I think it will also get people talking about a lot of things they've been talking about. I liked the bit about Cynthia Nixon, Miranda, who plays Miranda and her directorial debut. I liked seeing the relationship between the three leading ladies and some of the new characters coming in and the sensitivities with getting that balance right. But it did also feel like they were so in the bubble 
of love and sex in the city, I did wonder were they unable to objectively see some of the things that people have had a problem with this season? Because it felt like, because as you said, there were so many of the oldies that came back in. It speaks to obviously how invested everyone is in the show, um, especially Sarah Jessica, as they, they keep calling her, how invested she is. Because that's in her like name. Time- <laughs> no, I know. I know, but in, but in my mind, it's Sarah Jessica okay. Parker. But of course, she, like people would just call her her name, but in my mind, it's Sarah Jessica Parker. Got it. Like you're John Boehm. I only, actually often just call you John Boehm. I do call you John Boehm quite a lot. <laughs> I thought it was interesting obviously how invested Sarah Jessica Parker and Michael Patrick King and everyone involved in the show is, and rightfully so, but often what happens with a reboot is it's given to a fresh set of hands or it changes networks or it's like a complete spin-off or, you know, takes place in a slightly different world or whatever. And I think what's so interesting about this is that there are these people who are so closely associated with this show who I guess feel so protective about the brand and every decision and every word and every hat that one of these characters would say, like wear or say, that I do fear that when you're in that environment and you're part of this cultural phenomenon that was Sex in the City, I can imagine it might be hard in a room for someone new in that environment to say, oh, would that be the thing you'd say? Or like, would that be the right decision? Do you know what I mean? When you hand over complete creative control, I feel like sometimes things can not always come out as intended. And I think that sort of is some of the criticism that the series has had, is that it's just like, yeah. was anyone else in the room kind of thing? Well, there are a couple of things in the docker, and then let's jump into the show, because I think there's a lot, we talked about this a few weeks ago when it launched, and a lot's happened in those eight weeks. There were two things I thought really interesting from the documentary. The first one was they had a rule in the writer's room that unless it's happened to a writer or they've got a story of this being a real-life story, it doesn't make the show. So there was this sense of like, I don't know if that's a blanket rule on everything, but there's this element of like you could defend the, the angle or the story because you're like, no, that happened to me. And they were talking about the menopause scene or the period scene or something when they were referencing it. And then later on Kristen Davis talks about how she did a number of one of the writer's stories this year because they had really happened to her. thought that was quite interesting. So it obviously has to pass some believability, real-life New York woman kind of test. The other one was seeing how nervous Sarah Jessica Parker was. A couple of scenes, they were getting ready to film the final bridge scene in Paris and how she was trying to put herself into the character and, you know, director and Michael Patrick King, the producer, had made a remove part of her outfit and then she didn't feel like she was the complete carry and she was, you know, then off centre. So you kind of like, yeah, like talk about method acting. They've almost become these people, but that probably cuts to your point of were they too much in a bubble? I found the hat, <laughs> the hat scene <laughs> sounds so silly, if, like to explain it. Like Sarah Jessica really loved this hat. She thought it worked with the whole outfit. Then she gets to set and Michael Patrick King has to like devastatingly tell her that the hat's not going to work and she has to take it off. And it's like, it's quite a dramatic scene. And she's upset and she's a bit like stroppy almost. Yeah. Really. And there's a bit of tension. And like, A, I was just like, well, can't she wear the hat in one scene and then take it off in another, which apparently you can't in, in this show. You can't take a hat off once you put it on. No, no. Cause that's like taking a jacket or a skirt off. The hat is like the basis of the outfit, which is where it's not just like, it's sunny. I'm putting a hat on. It's the look. <laughs> sure. But I, I just also felt like maybe they were too in it that, that became an argument when it didn't need to be. And the thing with the writer's room, I think on the surface sounds like a good rule, but if your writer's room isn't as representative of the world or doesn't have 
as many life experiences, then the people in that room, a lot of things are not going to have happened to the people in the room. And if your rule is you can't have something happen on the show that hasn't happened to a writer, well, then you need to expand your writer's room. So is that an actual rule? I don't know if I just overtook a line that was said because I thought they no, said they, that, they, yeah. they definitely said that that was a rule for the Sex and the City writer's room. But then there were a lot of things. They must have a representative writer's room for this reboot because otherwise how were they writing about <laughs> the more wokey stuff? And there the- are some new, new writers involved in the show, as we've mentioned. Uh, there's three new credited writers. There's um, Parks and Rec writer Reckner Fruitbone, uh, playwright and journalist Kelly Goff and essayist Samantha Irby, um, all of whom are uh, women of colour. Yeah. I think there's a lens that you look at a production of this show when, you know, you're 20-something years into it, you're incredibly successful, people don't say no to you anymore. I just think yeah. I think it's so different to if, and, and, you know, arguably they would have completely screwed it up, but if they had, if HBO Max had just decided, hey, let's reboot Sex and the City, but give it to a completely new creative group uh, to, like, you know, start from scratch, uh, cast from scratch, the Gossip Girl model almost, like an actual reboot as opposed to a continuation, it would be such... This isn't a reboot, it's a new chapter. So, yeah, I get what you're saying. I just think, I think the point I agree with out of all that was when you're so famous or you're too close to it, maybe people couldn't say no to you. Yeah. Because I think there were a couple of moments where it was like, did anyone not see that that was a bit weird or something? But, okay, let's get into this show because this show has polarised <laughs> so many people in the last 10, eight weeks. I cried at the beginning, at the end of episode one and during episode two when the big moment happened. And then I found myself quite teary at the end of this episode 10 so they certainly pulled at lots of sentimental heartstrings there were times where I was like where's this going what's this happening but then I still tuned in every week as did as looking by most binge viewers grew 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 as the weeks went on so you know people weren't deserting this they kind of love to moan about it or pull it apart but I think there'd be a lot of people out there there was a very funny Batuka advocate post you know you're either a person that wants it to come back or you don't, but it feels like at the moment from the data and what we hear is there's more fans than than haters, although everyone's talking about this, isn't there? There were still lots of things that divided people on this season, but it feels like it's popular. No, it, it absolutely is, and I think... I think why people are talking about it so much is because it falls into this really interesting territory where it's a good show. It's a compelling show that you want to keep watching, but it's based on this existing thing that a lot of people have a lot of passion about and therefore the tiniest change or tweak, you know, Miranda would have never said that. Like they're things that, yeah, they're, they're things that you don't have to say in Hotel Portofino because the characters in Hotel Portofino aren't a reboot of a beloved cultural like phenomenon from 20 yeah. years ago. It falls in this franchise trap of like how do you evolve it at least in superhero world a new director comes in and takes it in a new direction or you're allowed to go take and do your version of the dark joker versus the light joker versus the silly Catwoman or whatever that and then obviously the fans will revolt or do or don't like it but yeah you're right you kind of with so many of the same creators has it evolved yeah. it wanted to but did it enough. yeah i was just about to bring up like Marvel, because I think it's a really good, I think like it sounds silly, but I think it's a really good reference point. And just like that cannot exist on its own. You cannot evaluate the show on its own. 
because it's part of this bigger ecosystem. It's part of like celebrity culture. Yeah. There are real things that have happened in the world, like the Kim Cattrall, SJP stuff, mm-hmm. you know, that have happened that you can't detach from the show. Yeah. And equally, you can't detach the show from its predecessor. So if you loved Miranda in the predecessor and Miranda does something in the new one, like you can't detach those two things. Equally, you can't detach Cynthia Nixon's like personal life from what then happens in the show. It's this like wonderful and at times frustrating thing of everyone has so much to say about this show because it's so complicated and it's so like woven into the world in so many different ways. And the characters were so like so much of the criticism has been that Miranda, who was often the most grounded and the person that people could relate to the most, was had always been quite practical to her view on love and relationships and Steve and motherhood and stuff and how she was just throwing things out, like just, you know, shedding them off and running off into this whole new world in a way that they didn't think she would. So, yeah, that's the point, isn't it? You were so invested in these characters like you would be in an old book where you've, you know, read the characters for years and years and years and you come to expect what they might do. I felt like Carrie was still quite true to that, that person from the original I also felt like as this went on it felt like they bedded down a little bit like there were the scenes where they were in restaurants together or around bars together as this as it went on that felt more natural between them just the way they would rat a tat tat and play off each other as it went on it felt like if you flash back to that first scene at the very first episode we're in there in a restaurant and they're talking about where Miranda is and they run into somebody and you know it's all a bit uh it did feel like it bedded down for me and almost got more into a rhythm towards the end which is why I think it will be interesting like we don't know if the show is coming back nothing's nothing's been announced um you would think based on its popularity that it would but I think equally if the show does come back it will be fascinating to see again how they react to the first season because they obviously were reacting to the movies, they were reacting to the original series, they were reacting to the world around them. What does season two of And Just Like That look like, I think, would be really interesting. This will get the fans all, whoa, what are we hearing? There were quite a few comments and quotes as it came to an end about the final episode of season one. So it wasn't being talked about like a limited yeah, series. It's been, called a, it's been called the first season a few places and you go, well, First season of what? Many or? Yeah. So it feels like it'll be back. We know it's got people talking. It's sustained its popularity for the last eight or nine weeks. It hasn't kind of come and gone. So I would bet that it will be back. But when? Who knows? Yeah. There are shows, there are reboots and there are things that happen where, you know, you see a bit of like a curiosity dip in where people are like, oh, I'm curious what what they've done with this or Like, even for me, you know, I watched the first episode because I just wanted to see how they dealt with Samantha. Like, that was my Mm. curiosity in watching the first episode. And sometimes you see that and you just see a show, like, drop off a cliff after that because people aren't invested or they got their little, like, nugget of Sex in the City that they needed. But to see the audience grow, to see the discussion grow, to see how, like, invested people are in this. Like, this isn't a show people just dropped into out of curiosity's sake. And they left things open. You know, she talked about um, basically she set up a date with Miranda, with, with Miranda, with Samantha at the end, um, and they were going to, you know, meet up in a day or two, and the texting with Samantha's character didn't go away. So that Samantha as a character in that show remained. I felt like they were going to recast her. And hearing her SJP interviewed in the last few weeks, she said, you know, she doesn't think, there's a pathway back for Kim Cattrall because of so much of what she said about the friendship and her points of view on it that creatively, to your point about being in the bubble, she's clearly not in the bubble, so they're not going to, like, 
bring her into the bubble because whatever her criticisms are, it doesn't feel like they're open to them. And then equally that I think Michael Patrick King, the producer said in the, in the doco, you know, you have to take for granted what people tell you at face value. She's saying she doesn't want to come back. I'm not going to build this plan around a, a whim that she might, but it felt like, I felt like they didn't keep in the first episode, you felt like mate, they were kind of dealing with Samantha and then she was gone. They kept her in the whole way through. They kept away there for her. And if it wasn't to build a bridge or a fig leaf to, you know, bring her back in as Kim Cattrall, it made me think that they're not being done with Samantha and holy moly, will they bring in a different version? <laughs> Which Can you imagine the talk next thing of, you know, the controversy of that? Well, yeah. And, you know, the fact that we're talking about the real actress's relationship to the show and the casting of it, the recasting of it, I think is just why this show works frankly like whether you like it or not it's a hit and people are talking about it and what more do you want from a show i would say if i was hbo max i would throw all the money in the world at kim cattrall to give her her own legitimate spin-off just like samantha in paris or something because i would watch that show samantha takes shortage or whatever she's living in london isn't she it could be like an emily in paris but with samantha if she comes back from her yeah. How I Met Your Father or whatever she's doing on Hulu. Clearly, we could keep talking about the Sex and City cinematic universe for a long time. But if you have not caught up, all 10 episodes of And Just Like That are streaming now. And the documentary um, will autoplay for you at, at the end of um, episode 10 and is absolutely it, worth a watch. It cut in so fast, I couldn't even see the credits, John. But yeah, it comes straight up as episode 11. So if you're looking for it, that's how you find it. I just love having a gossipy, noisy show that love it or hate it gets people talking um and that's certainly what this series has done for the last little while so let's see what shall come the trans rabbi is in for rock spot mitzvah yes it's a day mitzvah where's john he died i know john died where are his remains next to my very best shoes i need to think more about where john might want to be if you're trying to reach me blink John, we're at the point in the podcast where we talk about dinner party recommendations. So we've talked about the things that are noisy and new this week, but I love getting the inside run on things that we might have missed or things that we love that we need our listeners to know about that are on binge. Let's start with you. What is this week's dinner party recommendation? Uh, So this definitely flew under the radar a little bit last year. It made a little bit of noise. If you've not seen it, I definitely think it's worth visiting and that is a documentary series called Q into the storm anybody i'll show them q proof say look talk me out of it have, have you, you heard, heard of the q the what QAnon. what had started in an online forum had crawled out from behind the screen to the seat of power all with the help of a single letter and we're gonna win big you just watch It's a six by one hour series. It's a globe trotting look at the phenomenon that is QAnon. I guess what's sort of interesting about this series, they talk to a lot of the people who are very close to the concept of Q or, you know, kind of seem to be within the inner circle of this very tight knit um, conspiracy theory, basically. And it's not a spoiler. I wouldn't say they reveal who Q is, because obviously um, for people who know what I'm talking about, QAnon is still kind of a mystery, but they stumble onto some very interesting things throughout the show. So if QAnon, US politics, conspiracy theories, any of that stuff is interest of interest to you, I would say check out Q Into the Storm. It started production before COVID and then sort of continued into the pandemic. So it's also kind of got an interesting pace to it where it sort of starts out in the real world and then um, obviously transcends into the pandemic. But yeah, that is my 
recommendation. Ali, have you seen it? I haven't, but I need to watch it because obviously this is a really big theme that we're seeing in American politics, in anti-vaxxers, so it's probably um, interesting for people to understand. And increasingly in Australia, concerningly, if people's cousins and uncles on Facebook are anything to go by, some of this stuff's making its way here. Yeah, one of my really good friends, it's actually split up a friendship because, um, yeah, like people have different beliefs and it's it's really come to question um, some quite, yeah, kind of creating fault lines in friendships and families, isn't it? So, yeah, I think it's worth a watch. Thank you. I will get into that. I love your documentary um, and special recommendations. Look, I'm going to talk about a show from 2020. It's a limited series. At the time I thought it might return. It might still. I don't know. My understanding is it's a limited series and it's an HBO series called The Outsider. Did you kill my son, Terry? Look at me! Terry murdered a child. Everything he does after that is like he's begging us to catch him. What kind of criminal does that? He didn't do it. I discovered this um, in the first lockdown in 2020. I remember binging it um, when we first got locked down. And I just, I think it's a worthy of a mention because it's got, for those of you that are digging season four of Ozark on Netflix, it's got um, Jason Bateman in it. But Australia's Ben Mendelsohn is kind of the lead character. It's effectively a very well done traditional HBO crime series, but there's a supernatural element to it. And I don't want that to put you off because sci-fi and supernatural are not my natural um, favourite areas to go with all the different types of content that you can have. But this... It's effectively a brilliant crime series, but with a slightly supernatural edge that I think is very much worth a go if you if you like to solve a crime. Um, and it's very, very, very well done as a kind of traditional detective story with a twist. Have you watched it? No, I haven't. But I did see some of the fan outcry when it wasn't when it didn't look like it was getting renewed or hasn't been renewed yet. So yeah, I know there's some love for it, but I will check it out and. I've just pushed it up the front page um, of Binge to remind me and um, hopefully some of our subscribers to also check. People, that is power. As we're talking, you've just changed the carousel. Okay, John. Oh. Awesome. Well, Ali, thank you again for hanging out this afternoon. What did we talk about today? Hotel Portofino and Just Like That and the And Just Like That documentary. I suggested Cue Into the Storm and Ali suggested The Outsider. You can, of course, stream all of these right now on Binge, which you can find on your favourite device. I'm John Boehm. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, this podcast is produced by Dan Barrett with audio editing and mixing by Chris Yates, and we'll be back next week with more suggestions. Suggestions.